dying question that I know is in all of your minds coming in here today was, where do I get a hairnet? <laughs> feed my starving children, friends. It's feed my starving children. So that was a couple uh, weeks ago, I'm pretty sure. Good times. Um, we are closing up a series called Glimpse. So if you have your Bibles, uh, grab them. If you don't, again, there's some on the table there. We're in Matthew 25. And as you turn there, I'll just give you a, uh, a little update. Um, this is, whole series is based on this idea that in John chapter 14, Jesus is talking with a group of people, and Philip, his friend, says, uh, essentially, uh, we want to see the Father. And Jesus answers, and he says, don't you know, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So it's this idea that when Jesus speaks, when he tells a parable, we get a glimpse into the heart of God. We begin to see uh, what grows in God's heart. We begin to see what kind of God Jesus comes to represent. Because if he does anything, he comes to say, this is who God is. And if you've seen me, you've seen God himself. So uh, we've, been, we've been kind of leaning into this idea that when Jesus tells parables, we get a look into who this God is. And so we've talked about the parable of the vineyard. We've talked about uh, the parable of uh, our, the rich man Lazarus a couple weeks ago. And today we're going to talk about the parable of the talent. So I'm going to read from Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. It says this, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. And so also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you've entrusted me with five talents. I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Verse 22, the man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And now we get to the whipping boy, verse 24. The man who received the one talent, master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seeds. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here, what is, here, see, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered. Well, then you should have put my money in a deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. Pray with me if you will. God, I want to ask that today as we open your scriptures and as we study them, that you would illuminate them, that you would, uh, just like you did when they were originally penned, that you would speak that you would say something to us here today that we need to hear. Uh, challenge us. Help us to understand who you are and get a glimpse of who it is that Jesus represents when he comes and shows up on this earth, God. Uh, I pray that you would um, use the things that I've prepared, but uh, certainly, God, don't let me get in your way. Say what you want to say and do what you want to do, I pray. In your name, amen. Um, Okay, so I just want to talk with me here for a minute. Um, some of the possible interpretations, some of the classic, some of the ways that you have heard this parable interpreted, just kind of shout them out if you've got some ideas. Uh, you've heard this story before, maybe you've heard it preached in a church. Um, what, what's the interpretation or what's the takeaway from this, you know, as money, okay? What else? 
Gifts and talents, okay? More specifically, maybe even spiritual gifts. Uh, I've heard that one before. What else? Okay, evangelism. Yeah. All right. What else? Any others? Okay, what kind of a father we have. All right. Um, Yeah, it's about spiritual gifts. It's about not wasting the gifts that God gave us. Maybe uh, less theological, a little more moral or lesson-based. It's about being wise and shrewd investors with the money we have, right? Uh, or, or if you're faithful with what you have, then you'll be given more. Um, by the way, uh, most scholars would argue that when Jesus told the parable, it ended at verse 29 or 28 where I stopped. That's why I didn't read 29 and 30, if you were wondering. Um, question that I'd like to propose or start with. How do we get there? How do we get to this place where, uh, or this spot where we get the, the interpretations that we've just offered? What's the, what's the lens that we have to read it through? What's the way in which we get to this spot? And remember, uh, if you've been here with us the last couple of weeks, there's a few different categories or there's a few dis- different kind of traditional ways that we read parables. Uh, one would be theological. That when Jesus tells a parable, what he's doing is telling us something about theology. He's telling us something about the kingdom. He's telling us something about the way in which uh, uh, the kingdom looks and will look in the future. Um, another possibility, if not theological, is sort of this moral idea that when Jesus tells a parable, he's telling us something about um, what it means to be human, what it means to live in relationship with other human beings, uh, what it means to live on this earth, right? It's a, it's a lesson, kind of Aesop's fables, if you will, of our day and age. Now, the key, is, as far as I see it, if we're going to go this direction, if we're going to interpret the parable in this fashion, we have to do something at the very outset, or, or maybe an assumption that we have to make in order to get to this spot. And the assumption is this. We have to assume that the man of noble birth in the beginning of the story... Luke goes on and tells us in his his version that he's actually going to another distant country to get kinged or get a crown. But this guy, we have to assume that this is the God figure. That this guy, the man of noble birth, equals God. So when Jesus tells the parable, this is who this person is in the parable. If we're going to, you know, attribute meaning to different people in the story. Now, I have two nagging questions if that's the the way we're going to go. And if you've been around me enough, you, you know what's coming here. I'm about to sort of tip this thing on its side and kick it a couple times and then offer something else. <laughs> but here's the two nagging questions that I have. The first one is this. Why? Why in the world would Jesus tell a parable about a theological or, or um, a doctrine of the Christian faith that hasn't even come to be yet? Right? If this is about spiritual gifts... Spiritual gifts don't show up on, on the scene until after Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God is given to the church for the work of the church in the world to do what God asked them to do. So if Jesus is going to tell a story, why would he tell a story about spiritual gifts when he's not dead, he hasn't resurrected, the church as we know it isn't even, a, isn't even in existence yet, right? This is classic anachronism. This is us taking our view back into the text. And I think if, if, we, if we read it this way... It, it's a, it's a question that you, I don't think you can answer. It just lays out there. If you're Jesus, first century Palestine, you're a Jewish rabbi, you're a Jewish teacher, rabbis hadn't really come on the scene until the third and fourth century, either be that as it may, why would you do that? The second nagging question that I have is this. Why does the third servant respond the way he does? What does he say to God, the God figure? He says... You're a hard man. You, you reap where you haven't sown. You scatter where you haven't, you haven't or you, you gather where you haven't scattered seed. Is there any place in creation that God isn't present? 
Is there any part of creation that God doesn't have dominion over? Is there any part of it? I would argue, no, there isn't. So why does the third guy respond and say, God figure, you're a hard man. You've, you, you've reaped where you haven't sown. Two nagging questions. Now, I'm going to ask one more question, and then we'll get to unpacking the parable. Uh, the question is this. What do we need? To, if, if, if these questions are unanswerable based on a particular interpretation or lens that we read the parable through, then what do we need to know about the ancient Near East? What do we need to know about the culture in which Jesus told the parable to really get what he's saying at? This is reviews. Uh, uh, I'll show you a picture here. What, what you'll see here on this next slide is a, basically a, a, a graphic depiction of ancient Near Eastern culture as it relates to wealth. So the people at the top, as you can see, very, very small. The governing class, the ruling class, uh, at the very top, it's like the ruler you know, of, of, the, of the geographic area. But then below that, you have the politicians and the ruling class making up less than 5% of the, of the group of people. Below that, you have what they call the retainers, right? The governing class, the merchants, the retainers. These are the people who basically carry out the will of the people at the top, okay? And at the bottom, the largest group of people here is the peasants, these are the people who have, who have family farms. They have had land passed on from generation to generation. They're agri- they're, they're, it's an agrarian culture. So this is the, the, the vast majority of the people in this context and in this culture into which Jesus tells this parable. The very bottom is the lowest of the low. These are the, the day laborers, uh, which is we saw in the parable of the vineyards. These are the people who are, are the expendables. They are, they are hanging on by a thread, so to speak. What we need to know about this is the people at the top who have all the power, all the money, all the wealth, the only way they get that, answer this question, if you're in an agrarian culture, what is worth most, what's, what's of most value in an agrarian culture? Land, okay? Land. So the peasant farmers are the people who have the land, but the people who are at the top have all the money. Here's how this works. Uh, the people at the top basically loan money to the, to the peasant farmers at crazy outlandish prices and, and interest rates. And then when the peasants can't pay back their loans, what do they do? They take their land. This is the most common way in which people who had land in the ancient Near East got it. Other than, I'm so-and-so and my dad has owned this farm and his dad owned the farm and his dad owned the farm and so on. Two different groups of people. And the people who are on the bottom down here are the people who used to have land who, who now don't have land because it was taken from them. Okay? So this is the context and culture into which Jesus tells this parable. Now, three key words are important for us as we understand this parable. Oikos, polis, and imperium. These are all Greek words and we'll walk through them. Oikos is essentially this. It's the household. So the oikos in the first century is the household. It is the most basic social, economic, political, and cultural unit of the ancient Near East. It is the building block of culture in society, hands down. And specifically, the oikos of the culturally, the, or the, the social and the politically elite. These become the building blocks of the culture and the society in the first century. It's called the oikos. And the oikodespotis, which was a, a term that we talked about in the first parable, this, these are the, the landowners, these are the, the, uh, the masters in the, in the parables, these are the, uh, the heads of the household, so to speak. So that's who these people are. And the wealth of the ancient Near East, the wealth that, that was harvested from the land, uh, gathered into storage, monetized, and, 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 and then um, shipped or exported, this was all done by the oikodespotis, whoever owns or operates or manages or is the head of the household. So the oikos is the, is the building block of the culture. 
Up from that is the polis, right? Minneapolis city, okay? It's a city. So the polis is essentially a macrocosm of the family. All of the powerful people in an area would make up a city, and cities would grow around the power and the wealth that existed in the culture in the ancient Near East. So the city becomes a macrocosm of what's happening on a micro level in the household. You follow still? Now, beyond that was the kingdom. And if you follow the logic, a kingdom, the imperium, is just a macrocosm of the cities. It's a collection of, of well-to-do and wealthy and, um, you know, uh, progressive cities in an area. So you have imperium at the top, the kingdom, the cities, and then the households. Now, why, do, why are these three things important? Every kingdom was governed by bureaucracy. It was governed by hierarchy, and every kingdom was a collection of cities. So if every kingdom is a collection of cities and every city is a collection of households, the DNA of the kingdom itself filtered through each of the bureaucratic systems in each of those. So if the, if the kingdom is run like this, then the city was run like that, then the household was run like that. The point is that the household itself was a bureaucratic hierarchy. So if you were a landowner, if you were a wealthy person who owned land, your household would be filled with, if you remember the the, the deal that went like that, the retainer class. The retainer class of people are the people who would do your work. You would bid them to do the things you wanted them to do, and they would carry it out, right? Now, who were the retainers? If you're a retainer in this culture... People hate you, right? Because you're a sellout. You're, you're, the, you're the person who does the, you're not the beck and call of, the, of the, health, the, the wealthy landowners who've taken the land from the peasant farmers, the, the, massive, the mass of the population. So you're like the middleman that gets stuck in the middle doing the work of the people who, who are above you because that's how you make a living. But nobody below you likes you, okay? You're a sellout. You're a scab. You follow? You tracking? So now, Having said that, here we are with a familiar parable, the parable of the talents. Interpretations that, at least for me, I don't know about you, I'll just speak for me personally, leave more questions than they do answers. And some interesting information about the ancient Near East and culture and the way things were structured. So let's walk through the parable and see if it doesn't unfold a little bit, see if it doesn't uh, begin to illuminate. Verse 14 says, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To the one he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his own ability. Something interesting that you should know about heads of households in this day and age. If you're a head of a household, you don't make money sitting at home playing Xbox 360, okay? Uh, My brother owns an internet company, and literally, he told me, he's like, yeah, it's awesome. I sit at home, I watch ESPN, and I watch my ticker, and somebody orders a, marystockings.com, in case you're wondering. Somebody orders a a Christmas stocking, it goes through my ordering, you know, uh, whatever. Then somebody over in China makes a stocking, and then that's shipped to uh, Kansas, and a lady, a little old lady who has an embroidery machine, embroiders Bobby on the personalized Christmas stocking. That ships to so-and-so, and I never even see it. I play Xbox 360, I watch ESPN. Okay, this doesn't happen in the ancient Near East, right? And there's no way to do this. The only way you can make money is by actually physically going and representing yourself. So if you're a wealthy landowner in the ancient Near East and you're going to make more money, there's two ways you do it. Number one, you actually travel. You go to the places. You go and see the people you've loaned money from and you take their land. Uh, You travel all around. And the other way you make money is when you're gone, you have a retainer class of people who are investing your money and continuing to do what you've done to amass wealth. The only way to secure wealth and grow was to travel. So um, this guy 
in this parable, he travels. He's, he takes his retainer class of people. This is not a test, friends. As we think about this parable and we think about these people who get this money and it's like this test to see if they're going to be faithful with it. I would argue it's not a test because a talent is way more money than you would give somebody to test. And why would you test anybody if you're going to leave? If you're trying to figure out if a group of people are faithful and they're going to do what you ask them to do, they're going to, uh, you're going to be able to entrust your money to them and your fortune to them, you're going to do it while you're around, not while you go on a long trip. So I don't think this is a test for these guys. And these retainers, the people that would have been given this money, were people who were already entrusted. They, were, they have already proved themselves. They've already been vetted. And so this guy gives him their money, gives him his money as he goes on this trip. This is how retainers make their money. There's a, uh, there's a, a, a code that was found. It was, it was written by the sixth king of Babylon in the early 1900s in Persia. Well, it was found in the early 1900s in Persia. It's called the, co- the Code of Hammurabi, and he says this, or in the code it says this, the profit of 100% was the minimum profit accepted under the law of Hammurabi, which is essentially to say this, when a, when a wealthy landowner would entrust money to a retainer, the expected amount back is how much? 100% of what he's, so a profit of 100% was the bare minimum. So if a guy gives five talents, how many does he expect back? Ten what he's been given, and five more, right? Which is exactly what the first two retainers do. Very interesting. Um, BTW, the last line here, each according to his own ability, could equally or as easily be translated according to his own power, according to his own status in the hierarchy, according to his own position in the household. Verse 16, the man who received five talents went at once to put his money to work, gained five more. Also, there was one, who, uh, one with two talents, gained two more. But the man who received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. And here, I think, is the key. Here is the linchpin. Here is the one that unlocks the door for me. How did the retainers make the money? We're given no, no description, right? But if you're going to try to be a good student of, of what's going on culturally. How would these people have made money? Who are they? Right? They're retainers. This is a retainer class. Nobody likes them because they serve the people who took the land. So if they're going to make money, are they going to uh, you know, build some equitable business partnerships with the peasant landowners? No. They're going to do exactly what they saw the landowner do. They're going to continue to exploit the people that have already been exploited. There's one particular group of people, there were some studies done about peasants and uh, some of the research I've been doing, and one particular peasant group in South America says this when they read this parable. They said, this is a very ugly example of exploitation and speculation of money. The absentee master, the, 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 the landowner, looked for others who were exploiters just like him. Okay, now what's going on in the parable? You have a wealthy landowner who entrusts some money to some retainer class people who don't enter into equitable business partnerships with the peasant economy class, but more than likely continue to do what the master has done to get the money. And what does he do when he returns? He rewards them for doing exactly what he's been doing. Now, 
the whipping boy of verse 24 and 25. For me, every time I've ever read this passage, I'm like, this guy's lazy. I mean, he even says it. He's a wicked, lazy servant, and he becomes the whipping boy for the whole parable, right? Everybody's like, gosh, don't be like that guy. Invest your money. Do good with your spiritual gifts, all this other stuff. Actually begins to emerge as the hero, doesn't he? (laughs) I mean, this is just awesome. Jesus didn't get killed because he told pithy stories, friends. Jesus didn't hang on a cross because he told stories that didn't make people pissed. Kids are out. I had to make sure. I'm looking around. I'm looking for my children. Jesus got hung on a cross because he said things that were totally subversive, that were completely undercutting the very things that the culture was built on. This is why they killed him. So he tells a story about a retainer who does what? Who stands up and says, you... You have reaped where you haven't sown. You gather where you didn't scatter, which is essentially to say the land that you have, that you gain all your wealth from, it's not yours. You took it from somebody else. So what did I do? I hid your money so it couldn't be used the same way it has been used to exploit people, to be a part of the system that continues to do exactly what it's been doing. The third becomes one who actually stands up for justice. A couple of questions as we close. What if the parable isn't about spiritual gifts? What if it isn't about investing the things that God has given us? But what if it's about systems and people who exploit others? What if it's, what if it's about having the courage to stand up for what's right, even when it will cost you? What if, it's call, what if it's about calling out evil when we see it in the world? What if it's about standing against it and not participating in it? Now we have a conversation that's worth entering into, I think. Let me close by saying this. What if the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus doesn't only save us from our personal sin, but actually speaks into the systems and structures of this world that are not of God? What if the gospel is really about the redemption, really, really about the redemption of all things? About a God who's redeeming all that he's created and everything in it. I would submit then our political systems, our governments, our kingdoms, our economies, our currencies, our marriages, our relationships, our schools, our hearts, our rivers, our lakes, our parks, and our forests should all feel the effects of the gospel. That's the kind of gospel that I'm interested in. I don't know about you. As we move towards communion, I want to I just offer that this parable be a reminder to us that sometimes we compartmentalize things. That sometimes we distance one thing from the other. And we, we, we separate life and faith, sacred and secular, spiritual and normal, from each other. And so far as I can tell, this is not what Jesus is interested in doing. But as I read it, Jesus appears to be interested in a holistic, integrated redemption of all things in and through the person of Jesus. And so as we come to this table, 
That's what we're invited into. That's what the church has been invited into. Personal salvation from sin is important. You're important. Sin matters. But when we minimize the gospel to that, I think we miss out on the, on the subversiveness of what Jesus does and says in the gospels. And I think that's why they killed him. I mean, Jesus was God's son. He was, he was a part of something that God was doing. But I think that's why they killed him. It wasn't just some bizarre thing. These weren't puppets on a string, okay? Jesus said things that really made people angry. And this is the kind of community that we want to be. This is the invitation that we want to respond to at Awaken. And so I want to just invite you not only to this table, to communion, but to this invitation that God gives us as the church to do and be the work of Jesus in the world.